The Bob Murphy Show, episode 254. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This is going to be another unusual one. It's going to have a little bit of something for everybody. The topic for today is the recent article published in the Journal of Political Economy by Phil Magnus and Michael McCovey, The Mainstreaming of Marx, Measuring the Effect of the Russian Revolution on Karl Marx's Influence. Okay, so big picture these two guys published this paper. And by the way, the journal Political Economy is huge. It's one of the top ranked economics journals in the world. Like if you're an economist trying to get tenure somewhere, having a publication in the JPE is awesome. Okay, so there's that element of is what's involved here too. So what they're going to argue very quickly, I'm going to state it and then I'll keep circling back as we elaborate and go through different stages of this episode, is that Karl Marx as obviously humongous right now in our time, having influence in all sorts of academic disciplines well outside economics, in fact, arguably much more influential outside economics than within economics. And the question is, why is that the case? And so what they're going to argue in this paper is that the fact that it was a group of people identifying with Marxism who seized control of Russia in 1917, that that gave a huge boost to Marx's popularity. It wasn't just that his ideas gradually percolated around academia, winning people over through their irresistible internal logic or empirical verification or whatever. No, it was people were impressed by the power that Marxism had and or the fact that the actual Bolsheviks, when they took power, did things that actively promoted Marx. All right, so that's what Magnus and McCovey are claiming. And this has caused a humongous uproar on Twitter. Maybe it happened elsewhere too, but definitely on Twitter. And I had a little part to play in this, but it was mostly people on the left when this paper came out, went nuts saying that, you know, its thesis was ridiculous. And they just started, you know, insulting and mocking Phil primarily because they had known him from earlier encounters. And Phil behaved as Phil does when people criticize him. And so it was a big thing. But I want to just stress, because I know many of you listening to this probably saw my interactions with Phil on Twitter, and you might have just thought, oh, this is like an internal thing. And Phil and his co-author published the paper, and Bob, for some reason, you know, had to be in his bonnet about it, and they just went back and forth, and no big... No, like there were people... So in case you're listening to this well after it runs, this happens to be right in the time period when people were worried that Twitter was going to go down because Elon Musk took over, our employees left, blah, blah, blah. And so I guess if you're listening to this in the future, you'll either know like, oh yeah, that was a silly worry. Or you're like, Twitter, what's that? And so people were saying things like leftist economists and other social scientists on Twitter were saying things like, well, if Twitter does go down, at least we had one last shot at this Phil Magnus clown, you know, that kind of thing. Like that's what I'm saying. This was 
a chapter in their history of Twitter was, oh yeah, that time that a bunch of us went to war again with that Phil Magnus character. All right, so this, it's bigger than me, okay? And I'm just glad that I played some small role in it. Okay, so what I'm going to do in this episode is first, just to give you a little outline, I will explain what this technique is that's called synthetic control. Okay, so because that's the particular method that Magnus and McCovey used in their paper. So I'll just talk generally about what is synthetic control, just to give you guys some sort of learning, something to show for the time you spend listening to this episode. Then I will talk about the paper and assess what, you know, do I think they accomplished what they set out to or what did they accomplish with the paper? What are its strengths or its weaknesses? And then the last segment, I will turn to the online debates because part of what I want to get across in this episode is that if you're a fan of Phil and you think, geez, man, this guy, he's just, hey, he's taking flat because he's over the target, baby. I mean, he's, he's, whether it's the 1619 Project, whether it's Thomas Piketty, whether it's the one guy who accused of plagiarism, I forget the guy's name, this Phil is just on people and those leftists, they don't like it. They can't handle an investigative reporter who comes in spitting logic and quoting them and holding their feet to the fire. And so they just lash out with all kinds of baseless accusations. And actually, they're a bunch of idiots, too, if you just actually read what they say. And, you know, that was a lot of what Phil's buddies were doing. And I want to say, no, that's not what happened here. Okay, so I'm not saying you got to throw Phil under the bus by the time I'm done with this episode. But I want you to see how, oh, yeah, if I came into this and I was not already a right wing minarchist slash libertarian slash anarchist who hated the lockdowns and already agreed that the 1619 project was nuts and blah, blah, blah. I would actually think this guy, Phil, was wrong and wow, handled himself very poorly in terms of academic discourse, right? I want you to see that. That's what I'm hoping to achieve by the end of this. Okay. Before I dive into those things I just mentioned, let me also say two things. One, I'm holding the baby right now. So if you hear something, that's what's going on. As with the previous episode on Kanye, it was the kind of thing where like, I basically did this episode in my head, waiting for a time when it would work to conveniently sit down and record for an hour and a half. And that's just not going to happen anytime soon. So I'm holding the baby. Other thing is, let me just mention the personal connection here. So I know both Phil Magnus and Michael McCovey. With Phil, I have co-authored a paper on Thomas Piketty, challenging his empirical contribution. So we went when his book came out, Phil and I were both going through it and, you know, blogging about it and just saying, whoa, on page so-and-so, he says this, that's crazy. And we were asked to submit an article on this. We did that. And it was at one point, I believe this is a true statement. It was the most downloaded article on the SSRN site. It was like, I don't know if it was for that whole year. It wasn't just like last Thursday, the most, it was, it was a bigger time frame. but in any event, so there you go. So that with Phil, people might just say, well, now in light of Phil's antics, do you stand by that paper, Bob? Certainly the stuff I put in is right. And I did go and independently you know, like when Phil said, hey, I went through Piketty's data sets and he said this about China, but look what he did here and blah, blah, blah. And at first I was surprised. I was like, really? Piketty did that? I don't know. And then I went and looked and I did see what Phil said Piketty had done. So I did check. So as far as I know, everything's still good in that paper. I do remember, just to give some inside gossip, 
I thought the tone was too strident originally, and I toned it down a little bit. All right, so I guess there's that element where Phil's a brawler. Okay, with Michael McCovey, I was a faculty member at Texas Tech, specifically the Free Market Institute that Ben Powell runs, and Michael McCovey was one of our grad students that went through that program. All right, so I was there for much of Michael's tenure there, put it that way. I don't remember the exact dates and how they lined up. Also, Kevin Greer is a guy that joined the Free Market Institute of Texas Tech while I was there. And he's the one who taught all these guys how synthetic control works. All right. So Kevin is, you know, the quantitative econometric guy. And he's a master at this stuff. So he taught Michael this and they thank him in their acknowledgments on the paper. So that's where they're getting all this stuff from. So there's no doubt in my mind that Given how synthetic control works, it was done well in this paper. And that's presumably why the JPE liked it is because, hey, there's this relatively new technique being applied in a novel way that's interesting. And I'm sure, like I say, like in terms of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, they had everything solid because Kevin is really good on this stuff. Last little thing, I'll just mention it, give you guys some anecdotes. So one time we were at band camp we were at Texas Tech. I was in my office and Michael was there too, like the wing where the FMI's offices were. And there was an active shooter situation. So, I mean, it's terrible tragedy that the police had, I don't know if it, I think it was like the campus police, but they were doing like wellness check or something. Not wellness check, that's the medical. I forget what they called it, but they were checking in on somebody, a student, and then they caught him. He had drugs on him and they went to, and they took him in, you know, I guess arrested him as the term. And they didn't pat him down. No, I, I take that back. Did he have a gun? Maybe he grabbed the cop's gun. Something like either that or they, no, I think they didn't pat him down. I think that's what it was. I think he had a weapon on him and they just didn't pat him down. Anyway, he panicked and he, at the station, pulled out a gun and shot a cop. And I believe the guy died. And then the kid was on the run. And so like, you know, the Texas Tech campus was locked down active shooter situation. So Michael and I were locked in the FMI's offices, you know, waiting for a resolution of the situation. And I told Michael, I opened up like a little closet and I said, Hey, if that kid comes in here, you hide in here and I'll just tell him I'm working. It was at night. And I'll just tell him I'm the only one here working. All right. Cause that's how I roll with the grad students. So I have a very protective feeling towards Mr. McCovey and, or Dr. McCovey. And none of this should be construed that criticizing him. Everything I'm going to say at the end of this episode is going to be my dissatisfaction with the behavior of Mr. Magnus. Okay. So like I said, before we dive into the specifics of this paper, let me just broadly explain what's going on with so-called synthetic control method. First of all, what does the term mean? Like, where does it come from? Why do they call it that? So just think about a regular like experiment. You know, they want to see if some drug helps with blood pressure high blood pressure. Okay. You don't just want to give it to some people and then see if their blood pressure goes down, right? Cause there could be all kinds of things going on that would affect the blood pressure. And it might just coincidentally be that, oh, it would have gone down anyway, even were it not for the particular mechanism that you think that that drug is using to cause it to go down. So you might erroneously conclude that the drug is effective when really it's not. Okay. So what you do ideally if you want to have a genuine controlled experiment is you need a control group. So you take people who are similar 
and various characteristics that you think would be relevant to this issue. And you split them into two groups. And then you randomly give the drug to one group and you give a placebo to the other group. And the reason you do that is because it's possible the mere act of participating in a study and taking a drug might lead you either just because of your, you know, mental state and mind over matter and the mind-body connection. And maybe if you just genuinely believe you're taking something that's going to make you better, you actually will improve. Or because you're taking part in a study that might lead you to change your diet and do other things that you otherwise wouldn't have that makes your blood pressure go down. And then, you know, the researchers would be falsely attributing that to the drug itself when really it was no participating in the study led to this beneficial outcome. So to try to control for that type of thing, that's why you have a placebo. And if it's a blind study, that means the participants don't know whether they're actually getting the real drug or the placebo. You know, like if it's a pill, they all get identical looking pills. Just one of them doesn't have anything in it. It's, you know, got saline or something. If they're drinking something or having it pumped into them, whatever. Okay, you get the idea. And then if it's a double blind study, in case you don't know what that term means, that means the researchers themselves don't know who got the placebo and who got the drug. Now you might say, well, then how do you know <laughs> at the end of the trial what happened? Well, because they like, they use a technique to hide it, that knowledge from themselves until the end of the trial. And then they know who got what, obviously. Okay, so that's how that works. So that, again, the group that gets the placebo, that's called the control group. And so that's like the baseline. That's the group against which you compare the treatment group. And so if for some reason, like something happens, you know, because it could be a long study, you know, maybe it's going to go over three years and maybe just there's a fad Kentucky fried chicken that sweeps the nation during that three years and everybody's blood pressure in America goes up or something, you know, who knows? So that's why you need the control group that it's not so much comparing the treatment group after treatment to themselves before treatment because there's all sorts of things that could have happened. Instead, you're comparing them, the treatment group after treatment to the control group after treatment and seeing how do they diverge. And like I said, when you're constructing those groups originally, you want them to be similar for the types of things that, you know, they should have similar BMI and similar blood pressure. Like you wouldn't want your control group to have really awesome blood pressure and the other one to have blood pressure in the danger zone and do it that way because then that would be tricky. Right. So that's what you do. Okay. So now let's consider things like in the social sciences. Suppose you're interested in analyzing the effects of the minimum wage and you want to say, hey, if a particular U.S. state raises its minimum wage, because in case you don't know, states are allowed to and they often do set their state minimum wage floor higher than what the federal floor is. Many states don't do that, but some do. And so you say, hey, we want to know as economists, what effect does the minimum wage have? And so one thing we can do is look to see what happens when a particular state raises the minimum wage. How does that affect, like, let's say, teenage employment? So you might think, oh, it's pretty straightforward. You just look at the state. You look at what the teen unemployment rate was going up to the policy change. And then once the change kicks in, then you look at the teen unemployment rate. And you see if it went up, that means the minimum wage is bad. If it went down, that means minimum wage doesn't hurt on that dimension, right? And no, it's not so simple because there's all sorts of things going on in the economy that could affect the teenage unemployment rate in a particular U.S. state. And so those other things 
might cause the teen unemployment rate to go up or down, either supplementing or counteracting the effects, if any, that the change in the minimum wage law had on that particular variable. Okay, so you want to come up with ways to correct for that or to control for that. So one thing you can do if you're just doing a regression analysis is you can say, well, dependent variable is going to be the teen unemployment rate. Well, then, by the way, in this kind of work, they actually don't use the unemployment rate. Usually what they do is they look at the absolute level of teenage employment, like how many teenagers are employed, or they might look at the growth of that. Okay, I'm not going to get into why, but that's just so you know. So what you could do is if that's the dependent variable, let's say teen employment in the state, then as far as the independent variables, you wouldn't just have the minimum wage. You would have things like maybe the national employment level. In other words, to try to capture the effect, like what if the U.S. just enters a recession right when this one particular state happened to raise their minimum wage? Well, then teen employment is going to take a big hit, but it might be unfair to attribute that entirely to the minimum wage change in that state because, hey, look at teen employment went down over the whole country because we just entered a huge recession, right? So that's why you'd want to control for it. You would include that as one of the independent variables in the regression analysis. All right, you'd include all sorts of other things. All right, so you could do it like that. Another technique, though, that's analogous to what we're doing with, you know, testing a certain drug to see what its efficacy is in controlling blood pressure is you want to come up with a control group who didn't get the treatment. Okay, so you might, for example, say, oh, well, let's look at all the adjacent states to that state. And hopefully, for the purposes of your analysis, those other states refrain from changing their minimum wage in the period in question. And then you just, so you, you do it that way. And you say, well, okay, maybe we look and say, what's the difference in the growth rate of teen employment in the state that I care about versus the other states? So maybe if in general, the state you're analyzing has a teen growth rate, employment growth rate that's, it'd be funny if you looked at teen growth rate, teen employment growth rate that's 0.8 percentage points higher than the neighboring states. And then that difference gets cut in half once they raise their minimum wage. You might say, okay, the change in the difference in growth rates, the difference in difference is arguably due to the change in the minimum wage. Okay, so because if a recession hit the whole nation, all those adjacent states would likewise see an impact on the growth in their teen employment. And so by you looking not at the difference in teen employment growth in the state, but looking at the difference in the difference between that state's growth rate and its neighbors, then you're more likely to be isolating the true impact of the change in the minimum wage, right? But then it raises a question, okay, well, how do you construct the control group? Because, yeah, you can say it's the adjacent states, but what if, like, you got Illinois, it's got Chicago in it, and then some of its neighbors are not really the same type of economy. Like, maybe Chicago is more similar to New York than to other Midwestern cities, let's say. And so certain trends that affect economic growth might impact Illinois and New York State or California, also because notice those all have ports. They might affect those cities more similarly, or, or those changes in certain economic impacts might hit Illinois and California and New York State more than they hit some interior state that's adjacent to Illinois, right? So it's not obvious that when you're trying to construct the control group using other states for Illinois, 
that you would just pick ones that were adjacent to it, even though you might be thinking, well, I want to change as little as possible. Like, in other words, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go pick Dubai as the control group for the state of Illinois to say, well, I'm going to look at the teen employment rate in Dubai. And then when Illinois raises their minimum wage, I want to see what happens to the difference in teen employment growth in Dubai versus, you know, because it's like, wow, that's such a different thing. It's not really obvious that's a control for the state of Illinois. Okay. So if we're using U.S. states as our universe of possible members of the control group, then, you know, it raises the question, well, how should we do it? And then also too, what are we doing? Are we just like doing a, like making them all have equal weight in the control group? Like if we just said, we're going to take the average of the teen growth rate in the adjacent states and then see how does the difference between Illinois' growth rate and that average rate change once Illinois raises the minimum wage, you're implicitly giving the same weight to all of the neighbors individually. But maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe one of the neighbors is more representative and is a better control, in which case you want to give a greater weight. Okay, so what you do in the synthetic control group, so the word synthetic there is saying we're constructing the control group, is you have the computer decide. Well, it doesn't need to be a computer, unless you say like even an abacus is a computer. I guess you could go that route. In which case, yes, no matter how you decide it, it's a computer deciding. And what you're doing is you allow for weights on all of the possible other members of the pool called the donor pool. And it's an optimization problem. You're trying to minimize the error between the item of interest, the thing that's being treated, and the other ones in the pool who are not being treated. Okay, so in our example, you got 50 states or 49 other ones besides Illinois that could potentially be in the control group. And you're going to decide how much weight to give each one. So the weight's obviously got to sum to one. And no, no weight can be... Actually, I don't know if you can do a negative weight. It's an interesting question. Kevin Greer would know the answer to that. I don't. Okay, so then what you do is you have like a training period where you use the data that you already know. You actually, <laughs> you know the outcome too, but you don't use that yet if you have the data afterwards, after the minimum wage is raised. But you look at the period before the minimum wage is raised, and that's like the training period, and you feed that into the computer, and you're saying, if I want to use some linear combination of the 49 other states and their teen employment rates, what weight do I put on each of those 49 other states to best match quarter by quarter or month by month or whatever, the, however your data is, what I know Illinois' teen employment level was, whatever I said, I don't know if I said rate or level, right? And it, you know, just a, it's a standard minimizing the mean squared error, I guess is probably what they do. Okay, so that's what you're doing. Then once you have that, you're saying, and then you can look at a graph just to double check and make sure the computer didn't do something stupid. But typically, if you have a lot of potential members of the donor pool, it can adjust the weight such that, yeah, there's a decent approximation before the treatment effect kicks in, where by using, a, like I say, combination of weights on the other members, you can construct a synthetic Illinois that matches decently actual Illinois' teen employment level for the prior periods. And then you say, okay, now that I have those weights down, now when Illinois on this particular quarter raises its minimum wage to state level, now I keep using Illinois' real numbers going forward past that point to see what's their teen employment level month by month or quarter by quarter, however you got the data. And I can compare that now, not with any other real thing, but with synthetic Illinois' numbers. 
and using the same weights. I don't readjust the weights. No, the point of picking the weights is you do that on the pre-treatment period to say, how do I best approximate Illinois before they made this change? These are the weights we used on the other states. And then going forward now, I use those same weights because that's sort of like our best guess as that's the control group. We're saying, this is what we think Illinois would have done had they not raised their minimum wage that time. And then you compare that with actual Illinois. And that's a way to try to isolate the impact just of raising the minimum wage. Oh, before moving on from this. So let let me just (laughs) say a little bit more. So I want to stress, I feel bad for Michael. He's in a very awkward position. And he even said something to that effect on Twitter. Again, when these wars are brewing, or not actually brewing, being waged, he said something like, because Phil and I were going at it. And then Michael says something like, look, Phil is his own person and I don't control what he does on Twitter. I just want to say, you know, I respect both of these guys or something like that. You know what I mean? Like he was. (laughs) So then I said, Michael, none of this is your fault. We both love you very much, but sometimes people grow apart. Okay. So I'll just pause and let you process that. So. What I meant was, for whatever reason, Michael's tweet sounded to me like, you know, like when little kids' parents are getting divorced and, you know, the kids are, oh, why can't mommy and daddy just get along like they used to? And then what you're supposed to do, and I think it's very sound advice, is assure the kid that we're not getting divorced because of you. We both love you. Okay, there you go. So anyway, I did that and I was, you know, pleased with myself. I'm my biggest fan when it comes to my Twitter jokes. And I checked that like whatever, 10, 20 minutes later, just to see like, how's this one doing? And it had zero hearts. And so, you know, if it only had like three or four, I'd say, oh, okay, maybe I'm not as funny as I think I am. But when you get zero, that makes you worry that, okay, the masses were not seeing the connection that I did here that was the impetus for the joke. And so in this case, I'm guessing a bunch of people were like, what is this? I thought we were talking about Marx. Now it's Brokeback Mountain. What gives? So... Anyway, that's what was going on in case you saw that and you had no idea why I was expressing my feelings for Michael. Okay, before I dive into the meat of this, one more exercise, a warm-up exercise to get our bearings in terms of our value system and how we feel academics should behave. So when William Nordhaus won the Nobel, and yes, I know, it's not actually the Nobel, in economics for his work on climate change economics, It was the same, the announcement came up the same weekend that the United Nations released its special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. And the New York Times actually interviewed Nordhaus about, you know, his award and brought that up. And they said something near the end of the interview, like, so Dr. Nordhaus or Professor Nordhaus, what do you think? Can the world still uh, implement policies to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius? And he just said, you know, at this point, I know I don't think that's realistic. I think we have accept the reality that we're going to have more than that amount of warming. And that was the end of what he said. At least that's the end of what was reported in the New York Times. So I flipped out when that happened because William Nordhaus's own model shows that the optimal amount of warming is much higher than that. I think it's above three degrees Celsius. And in fact, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would be so catastrophic that it would cause more damage than if governments did absolutely nothing about climate change and just let it rip. All right. So my point is Nordhaus went along with the activists 
agenda and calls for 1.5 C warming is like the ideal target. And, you know, hopefully we could try to get there, but maybe not. When really what he could have also said was, no, we're not going to have 1.5 C warming. We're going to have a lot more than that. And thank goodness, because that would be a catastrophe for mankind, especially the people living in the poorer regions of the world, if we foolishly and stupidly tried to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And I can't believe these activists can't be bothered to have a cursory understanding of the actual peer-reviewed research in this area, such as my model, which has won me the Nobel Prize, to show that their goal and their calls for a 1.5 degrees Celsius target are asinine. He didn't say that, okay? And I was upset that he went along with the media's parroting of the activists' calls for a 1.5 degrees Celsius target, when, again, William Nordhaus's own work, for which he had just won the Nobel Prize, showed, well, I don't want to say showed, because that makes it sound like I think, you know, his model is correct in some metaphysical sense, but in the world of his model, that policy would be catastrophic. It would be better, again, if governments did nothing to limit emissions than to try to clamp down so hard to stop warming at the point of the globe just going, you know, 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than pre-industrial levels. Okay, so regardless of how you feel about what Nordhaus did or my reaction, I will say this. When I went around my outlets writing things on climate change economics and pointed that out, like, hey, you folks need to realize that there's a huge chasm between the actual peer-reviewed economics of climate change research and what activists and even some economists are telling the public about what this research shows. There's a huge chasm between what's actually in the papers that get through the peer review process and how people talk about what the papers show. And not a single Austrian economist or libertarian fan ever said to me, well, Bob, I mean, clearly someone's published work is one thing and what they say on their own time, even if it's to a journalist discussing their work is another and you know, you really should just limit your analysis to the published work and who cares what people tell the press or what they tell the public regarding what their own research has demonstrated. That's, you know, you're being kind of pedantic and lazy, really. Like, just go read Nordhaus's, you know, get into the code, look at his model. Why are you concerning yourself with what he may or may not have said to a New York Times reporter when he wins the Nobel Prize about what his work shows? No one ever said that to me. They were all like, yeah, Bob, geez, can't believe he did that. What a coward. I guess he didn't want to lose his standing with his leftist buddies. He didn't want to keep going to cocktail parties and getting invited to speaking engagements at climate change conferences, right? That's the kind of thing people said to me. Not a single person ever said an academic is not responsible for how he presents his work to the public. Nobody said that, okay? So maybe they were wrong, but that's how they handled it when I was complaining about William Nordhaus. Okay, I'm just going to, no reason, I'll just mention that and I'm going to move on. You can do with that what you will. Okay, so I'm on Twitter one day, minding my own business. Actually not, but looking at other people's business. And then I see this post from Phil Magnus, and he's announcing the publication of his paper, co-authored with Michael McCovey, in the prestigious journal Political Economy. And here's what Phil said in his tweet announcing this paper to the world. He had two sentences and then the link to the paper. Sentence number one was, Karl Marx was infrequently cited and largely unknown outside of radical labor activism prior to 1917. The main reason, this is sentence two, the main reason we even know about him today is that the Soviet revolution put him on the map 
and elevated him into academic prominence. And then he gives the hyperlink and he pastes a chart showing Karl Marx versus synthetic Karl Marx. And then there's a vertical dotted line on the year 1917, and it's showing how Karl Marx and synthetic Karl Marx, that those two lines roughly, you know, they bounce around, but they're largely overlapping from 1878 up to 1916. Well, actually up to 1917. And then going forward, there's a huge divergence. There's a big spike in actual Karl Marx, whereas synthetic Karl Marx kind of treads water from 1917 to 1929. They both bump up again in the late 20s, early 30s, maybe because of the Great Depression, I don't know. But at that point, there's a huge gap and actual Karl Marx is way above synthetic Karl Marx. And the y-axis is called n-gram percentage times 1 million. Okay. So again, let me reread. Okay, let me just reread again. And to be clear, it's not that Phil said, hey, everybody, here's my new paper. No, he had no other words. The following is the entire tweet followed by a link and the screenshot of the main results, the chart. Phil said, Karl Marx was infrequently cited in largely unknown outside of radical labor activism prior to 1917. The main reason we even know about him today is that the Soviet revolution put him on the map and elevated him into academic prominence. Okay, let me now turn to the actual paper, the title of which is the mainstreaming of Marx, colon, measuring the effect of the Russian Revolution on Karl Marx's influence. Okay. The abstract says, Karl Marx's high academic stature outside of economics diverges sharply from his peripheral influence within the discipline, particularly after 19th century developments rendered the labor theory of value obsolete. We hypothesize that the 1917 Russian Revolution is responsible for elevating Marx into the academic mainstream. Using the synthetic control method, we construct a counterfactual for Marx's citation patterns in Google Ngram data. This allows us to predict how often Marx would have been cited if the Russian Revolution had not happened. We find a significant treatment effect, meaning that Marx's academic stature today owes a substantial debt to political happenstance. Okay, and then on page two of the paper, they say, I'm going to read a paragraph here page two of the paper. In this study, we investigate the academic mainstreaming, and mainstreaming is in quotation marks, of Marx's ideas following his early rejection within the economics profession. We posit the primary reason for Marx's modern reputation traces to a historical event, the successful seizure of the Russian state by a Marxist movement in 1917. To examine this theory, we obtain yearly print citations of Marx's work as derived from the Google Ngram database. Ngram approximates the frequency that a specific phrase or author name is referenced in printed books over time and permits comparative analysis with other authors subject to the limitations of the database. Here's a key one. Our hypothesis is that Marx was an occasionally acknowledged but relatively minor figure between his death and the events of 1917. With the Soviet takeover of Russia, Marx's stature quickly rose. His economic theories subsequently entered the academic mainstream as they began to reshape other non-economic disciplines. Okay. So in terms of Phil's statements announcing the publication, clearly he's saying Marx 
was not well known prior to 1917. The title of the paper is The Mainstreaming of Marx, which suggests before 1917, Marx was not mainstream. And on page two, when they say what their hypothesis was, again, they said, our hypothesis is that Marx was an occasionally acknowledged but relatively minor figure between his death and the events of 1917. Okay, so I'm going to say, if it turns out that in reality, Marx was already a pretty big deal in 1916, that this paper collapses. It doesn't mean there's nothing of value in the paper, but in terms of what the paper says it's going to demonstrate, both in the title, there was a thing in the abstract too, and on page two when they say what their hypothesis is, and clearly what Phil is going around on Twitter telling people the paper shows, all of that cannot be true if it turns out that as of 1916, Marx was already a pretty big deal, right? So let me skip to the chase here. What's going to happen is the synthetic control group method sheds no light whatsoever on that question as to whether Marx was a big deal or not as of 1916. All the synthetic control method is going to do, and I have no problem with it on technical terms. Like I said, Kevin Greer is awesome on this stuff. And he, I think, spent a lot of time helping them with this paper, like, you know, checking it and everything. So I'm sure there's no problem technically with the charts of, you know, synthetic marks versus real marks, that kind of thing. And there is a big divergence after 1917. So I have no doubt that the Russian Revolution gave a big bump to the percentage of printed material books, actually, if it doesn't include newspapers and stuff, that contained the phrase Karl Marx went up relative to everything else. <laughs> That's what the engram thing is capturing. What percentage of printed words in a given year is the phrase Karl Marx in, in books. So the Russian Revolution gave a big boost to that. Depending on the timing you use, it looks like it doubled or even tripled that in a few years. Okay. I don't doubt that, but Phil and Michael and Phil certainly, you know, in their paper and then in the way he promoted it on Twitter, that's not enough. They are going around saying Marx was not mainstream, was not well known outside certain circles of labor activists prior to the Russian Revolution. And the only reason we know about him today is because of the Re Russian Revolution. So for what they want to use those results to demonstrate, it is very important that they show or that at least be true that as of 1916, Marx actually was not a big deal, right? And so what ended up happening is all these leftists, when they saw this paper, they lost their cool, about to lose their mind up in here. And some arguably acted the fool, engaging in profanity. And then they went through and, you know, like one guy in particular made long blog posts trying to document that Marx was a huge deal as of 1916. And so Magnus and McCovey, are full of it and they couldn't believe the JPE published this. And so then Magnus and McCovey's friends circled the wagons and just kept accusing their critics of not reading the paper and being stupid and not understanding how synthetic control works. So again, what's happening here is I understand both sides. Clearly, biggest diehard Marxist fan would not deny that, oh yeah, when Marx allowed for a group of people to take over a country, such was his influence that boosted his... The amount of times people cited him, no kidding. Why would that embarrass you? Like, I, you know, I, Bob Murphy, wrote a book on Texas secession. If they ever do secede, and especially if, like, the people that push that through, the vanguard, use my book as, like, and talk about how this was the inspiration for me to get into this project. 
I'm sure my work on capital theory would get cited more relative to a counterfactual world where Texas doesn't secede and nobody talks about how awesome my pamphlet on Texas secession was, right? Would that mean, oh, my work on capital theory is suspect if all of a sudden it got a boost because the people in Texas seceded and they liked my work on that stuff? No. So likewise, a diehard Marxist fan would have no problem with saying the Russian Revolution doubled or tripled his popularity, the frequency with which his name appeared in books printed in those years, in the immediate aftermath. Why would that be? No, what they would be threatened by and care about, and the reason the right-wingers like this result, is it would be embarrassing if, oh, the only reason we know about Marx today is because of the Soviets or the, you know, the Bolsheviks, especially because they arguably were not very nice. They didn't play well with others, right? So the leftists were going hard because they were saying, no, we're not going to allow you to say the only reason Marx is a big deal is because of the Russian revolution. That's not true. That's so clearly false. And here's why. And then again, knowing that actually the statistical techniques in their paper have no bearing on those larger claims, even though they say on page two, this is what our hypothesis is. The people who are familiar with the paper and like it are saying, what? No, that has nothing to do with what they're doing in the paper, you idiot. So you see how that works? Magnus, I'm not going to say Michael, but Magnus is clearly trying to use his paper to say something that the paper doesn't support. The critics are pointing out, you're trying to argue conclusions that are demonstrably false, you moron. And then the defenders are saying, well, no, actually, if you get into the meat of the paper, it has no nothing to say about whether Marx was a big deal or not as of 1916. So you idiots, can't you read? (laughs) That's what's going on here. That's like the big picture summary of the debate on Twitter. And I mean, to me, if I framed it that way, it's clear who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And it would seem to me that the best you could do if you were still a fan of the paper would be to say, yeah, Phil should not have been talking like that. And by the way, I did not see a single person say that that was his fan. I saw a lot of critics saying that. Nobody said, yeah, yeah, Phil clearly advertised this the wrong way, but you know, cut him some slack, it's Twitter. Maybe he had too much coffee that morning and just go look at the paper and nobody said that. It was, you are lazy, stupid, you don't know how synthetic control works. If you're running around thinking this paper had anything to do with the absolute level of Marx's influence as of 1916. That's the way they responded. Okay, let's continue. So what they do just to give more detail is they have a database of lots of authors, not just from economics, but other areas as well. And then they use the synthetic control group that they, they have, you know, like a training period beforehand to try to depict optimal weights on their database of authors to approximate the real Karl Marx. So they're constructing a synthetic Karl Marx, who is a combination of other authors with various weights attributed to them so that you can make synthetic Karl Marx track as closely as possible to the citation frequencies of real Karl Marx up to 1917. Then after 1917, they look and see how did synthetic Karl Marx perform compared to the real Karl Marx. And again, we see that the real Karl Marx saw a huge upsurge in citations, meaning the proportion of printed words and books following 1917 that were the phrase Karl Marx went way up relative to the other authors, the linear combination of which constitutes synthetic Karl Marx, okay? And that's the way they're saying it clearly looks like 1917 had a big impact on Karl Marx's citation frequency. By the way, so be clear, this isn't just academic literature. 
Google Ngrams is all printed books, is my understanding. So it's not like newspaper article stuff. And by the way, in the paper, Magnus and McCovey have a separate treatment showing similar results hold in newspapers. There's a brief spike after Marx's death in newspapers, but they're saying that's because Engels, you know, paid for ads, you know, with his obituary and stuff. So, okay, fine. Also, another subtlety is you have to worry about the language. And so Marx originally wrote in German, arguably, you know, he saturated that language first. And then there was a lag in terms of the translations and just the penetration into the English speaking world. So I believe the main result that Magnus and McCovey demonstrate or, or, you know, showcase is the English language one, but it, there's also a similar pattern in German. Okay. So big picture is I am not convinced by the paper in terms of what they said they were trying to achieve. I totally believe the narrow result. Yes, the Russian Revolution greatly increased Marx's popularity. I was surprised by the magnitude. So, you know, that's a contribution that, okay, they came up with a clever way to quantitatively assess the role that the Russian Revolution had on Marx's standing in terms of print discussion. Okay. So yeah, I I would not, I mean, I never really thought about it before, but I would not have guessed it would be that dramatic of an impact, especially confined to books, right? Newspapers, I would have said, okay, you know, like that's maybe a big deal if (laughs) in the middle of the world war, all of a sudden Russia gets taken over by a bunch of commies. That's kind of a big deal. And, you know, I could see them talking about Marx a lot more. Let me use this analogy. I could, I'm sure show, if I looked at mentions in the press, I could show that interest in Elon Musk sharply spiked in 2022. And that would be, you know, having to do with his Twitter bid. Sure, I could demonstrate that. It'd probably be a big boost. People in, you know, journalists were talking about Elon Musk way more in 2022 than they were in prior years. Does that mean Elon Musk was relatively unknown in 2021? If I talked like that and said Elon Musk was relatively unknown outside of climate change activists because of his work on electric cars prior to 2022, it was his Twitter bid that mainstreamed Elon Musk. And my demonstration of that was just showing that there was a tripling in press mentions of Elon Musk in 2022. Would I have made my case? No. Or if I said the only re- you know, reason we even know about Elon Musk is because he tried to take over Twitter, he did take over Twitter. No, that would be wrong. Okay, so likewise here, what they actually demonstrate is this big surge in interest in Marx or discussion of Marx after the Russian Revolution. But as you can see, both from Phil's announcements on Twitter, the title of the paper, what they say on page two is their hypothesis. All of that says much more, claims much more, says that Marx was unknown outside of narrow circles before the Russian Revolution, and that therefore we can conclude the only reason we know about he's such a big deal today has got to be because of that boost that the revolution undeniably gave to him. Okay, so that's a critical part of what they think they're doing with this paper. And I have not been convinced that that critical leg is true. And, you know, reading a bunch of these leftist responses, you know, helps reinforce, okay, yeah, my original thought going into because I thought Marx was a huge deal going into it. And after further review, the play stands. Marx was a big deal as of 1916. And it's crazy for Phil to be saying Karl Marx was infrequently cited and largely unknown outside of radical labor activism prior to 1917. No, that's just demonstrably false, in my opinion. So let me just try to give you some reasons to think that. Well, first, let me say this. You say, well, if Marx was not humongous as of 1916. Like he wasn't the most cited, you know, he wasn't bigger than, well, he was bigger than the Beatles at that point because they weren't alive. But he wasn't bigger than Jesus at that point. 
he wasn't bigger than Adam Smith. And yet now he's clearly one of the most, you know, influential figures. Like there's, you know, Marxists and art departments, history departments, sociology, psychology, Marxists all over the place. He's arguably one of the most important or influential thinkers in the last few centuries. Yeah, that wasn't true as of 1916, so clearly it must be the Russian Revolution, right? Well, no, because you can see the trajectory. Marx's influence was growing after his death. So, yeah, the fact that he got a huge boost after the war, you know, may have certainly helped, And but there's no reason to say Marx was fading out and fizzling out and would have just gone by the wayside were it not for the 1917 revolution. So let me just give you some factoids. So Marx died in 1883. So I'm looking at the Google Ngram data from 1879, right? So I'm cherry picking a little bit just to give you an, I mean, this is a true statement because Marx's influence shot way up the last few years of his life. So I'm picking my starting point in 1879 to catch some of that uptrend. But, you know, if we're saying Marx was a nobody, then, you know, he should have been fizzling out. So that it's not like I'm doing something dishonest here. If you go from 1879 to 1916, and you look at how much did Marx's n-gram score increase, the increase was 267%. So that's more than tripling, right? Because if it went up 100%, that would be a doubling. So going up 200% would be a tripling. So if it had reached a 300% increase, that would be a quadrupling. Okay, so again, using the very score or metric that Magnus and McCovey adopt in their paper to assess somebody's, you know, standing in the broader community, as of from four years before his death up to the eve of the 1917 takeover, Marx's standing more than tripled. So it's not obvious that, you know, notice, so he dies in 1883. So from 1883 to 1916, that's a decent amount of time. Decades have passed. So his standing from a few years before his death to 20, what, 36, 37 years later, more than triples. That's pretty good. I would be content to know that 30 years after I'm dead, the amount that people talk about me as a percentage of overall conversation in the printed material, more than triples. That wouldn't be too shabby. All right, so it's not obvious, were it not for the Russian Revolution today, we would be, Carl who? What are we talking about? You mean Groucho Marx? It's not obvious if he was on that much of an upward trajectory. Now you might say, hmm, okay, well, in fairness to Phil, could it be that Marx was such a nobody as of 1879 that even with that phenomenal growth that you just documented, Bob, as of 1916, he was still basically a nobody? And it was just, you know, some commie labor activist that knew who he was, but most other people didn't? No, that's not true. So again, using Google Ngram data, the very metric that Magnus and McCovey are using. And by the way, the reason I'm saying that is because one line of attack or critique of this paper coming from like historians of economic thought, not just leftists, was to say, oh, this, you know, the JPE is seduced by these fancy bells and whistles and people who are good at math rather than like who actually know the material. Like, you know, these authors don't really know much about the history or the, the intellectual history of this era. And a lot of the leftists, of course, were like saying these guys don't know anything about the different camps of the Marxist versus, you know, these people over here, these anarcho-syndicalists and blah, 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 blah. So it is what it is. Yeah, there's limitations, but I'm, I'm not 
taking that tack. I'm not saying this paper's dumb because who cares about citations in the printed word? What matters is blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying using the very type of evidence that they pick in the paper, I can look at the year 1916 and say things like this. In the English language, in the year 1916, so looking at you know the printed words and books in English, Karl Marx was mentioned more frequently, you know, meaning he had a higher percentage Ngram score than Isaac Newton, Jeremy Bentham, Alfred Marshall. He was also bigger than David Hume and David Ricardo. Okay, so again, compared to a bunch of other economists who wrote in English originally, right? Because Marx has a handicap there. He's got to have his work translated. But as of 1916... Marx was mentioned more in English books than, again, Isaac Newton, Jeremy Bentham, Alfred Marshall, David Hume, and David Ricardo. So if you think that those names are all relative nobodies that hadn't been mainstreamed, then okay. But if you think those people were in the academic mainstream, then Karl Marx clearly is. And he just, Leon Walras and Karl Menger, and so Marx blows them out of the water. It's not even close. Those guys are really fringe. Marginal, you might say. Also, William Stanley Jevons, Marx blows out of the water. Well, he's better than I don't have in front of me. I know he beat him. I don't know if he blows him out of the water. Okay. Now, to show that I'm not doing something wrong, I put in other names too, like Mark Twain, Benjamin Franklin, Herbert Spencer, and John Stuart Mill are bigger than Marx as of 1916, as you'd expect. I mean, Twain and Franklin crush him. Herbert Spencer is much higher. John Stuart Mill, it's closer, but he's, Mill still has an edge as of 1960. Marx surpasses him going forward, but you could say that's the revolution. Okay, so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Were you expecting that from hearing how Phil talked about it and even reading the paper? Now, at this point, some of you who have read the paper might be confused because you say, wait a minute. I know that they constructed a synthetic Karl Marx, and I saw with my own eyes that it was flat after that. And I also know from discussions that Phil had with people that the synthetic Karl Marx was other socialists, people like LaSalle and Proudhon and Rodbertus. And, you know, I, those names aren't very big today. They're certainly not of the stature of some of the other names you just threw out there, Bob. And that line was flat. So how can it be that if Marx was a linear combination of those other socialists, largely, that the synthetic Karl Marx and attract well... And then afterwards, they're flat. Like, I don't, how can that be? Something doesn't add up, Bob, because those other, you know, you tell me David Ricardo and David Hume weren't bigger than Red since the, you know what? Okay, so here's the explanation. So yes, it is true. If you consult table three of the paper, it's showing that for the English synthetic control group, the years are 1878 to 1932, looking at the weights placed in the different authors, 52% of synthetic marks is Ferdinand LaSalle, 28%, well, actually 29% with rounding, is Rod Burtis, and an additional 0.2% is Proudhon. So most of the way, that's what, 80, yes, 80% of synthetic Karl Marx is other socialist thinkers. And I think this is why some people were saying on Twitter words the effect that, yeah, were it not for the Russian Revolution, Karl Marx today would be just as popular as these other socialist theorists meaning not very popular at all. Yes, if you're a specialist in the area, you know who Rod Burtis is, you know who Proudhon is, you know who LaSalle is, but everybody knows who Marx is. So they clearly something happened to set him apart from the other socialist theorists and McCovey and Magnus demonstrate 
it was the Russian Revolution, because like I said, synthetic marks is 80% of these other guys. Okay. If that's what you thought, you chose poorly. That's not what's going on here. As of 1916, Marx crushes LaSalle, Rudbertus, and Proudhon. All right. So as of 1916, Marx is like five times as big as Rudbertus, and he's 66% bigger than Proudhon. All right. So maybe you thought crush was too strong a word, but he's 66% bigger than Proudhon as of 19. And he's bigger than LaSalle. I don't have the number in front of me, but he's way bigger than LaSalle too, as of 1916. So Marx already crushes his competitors before the Russian Revolution in terms of socialist theorists as gauged by Engram data. Okay, so what's going on here? How can it be that that synthetic Karl Marx, which consists 80% of these other socialists, tracks so well the actual Karl Marx if I'm now telling you that as of 1916, the actual Karl Marx blows those guys out of the water in terms of Engram citations? How can that be? Well, the answer is you have to look at who else goes into the construction of synthetic Karl Marx. Because in addition to the 80 percentage points I've already outlined, 12% of synthetic Karl Marx is Oscar Wilde. 5.6% of synthetic Karl Marx is Abraham Lincoln. And if you care about <laughs> the remainder, 0.6% is Kelvin. Okay, so as you might have guessed, Oscar Wilde and Abraham Lincoln, and Kelvin for that matter, are well above, and pa did I say past year? Are well above, why do I have past year in here? Did I mention him? Oh, it's, yeah, I missed him, sorry. Past year is 0.8%. Okay, so as of 1916, Lincoln's way bigger, past year is way bigger. Oscar Wilde, is he bigger? Actually, he might not be bigger. No, he is. He's twice as big. The way these graphs work, it's a little bit tricky because the it's color-coded and then the names sometimes are next to a line that is not, anyway, don't worry about it. Oscar Wilde is bigger as of 1916. But just not, not as, anyway, Lincoln, Pasteur, and Wilde are, and Kelvin are bigger than Marx. And so what's happening is it's the small percentage weight put on those figures that scales Marx up, the synthetic Marx up, to be in the same ballpark as the real Karl Marx. And then those other lesser socialists, I guess, are what's giving it like the fine tuning to catch, you know, the year to year vagaries because the fortunes, the popularity of socialist thinkers is probably not well correlated with the popularity of Abraham Lincoln, even though he was a dictator. Also, just meant Abraham Lincoln's trajectory, there was something that happened in the 60s, all of us, 1860s, that Lincoln just boom, goes way up and then comes down by. 1870. I'm not sure what's going on there. They'll probably do a paper on that. Okay. So that's what's going on. So if you thought that what Magnus and McCovey had shown was that Karl Marx could be approximated by a linear combination of other socialist thinkers and was roughly comparable to them as of 1916. And so then we can extrapolate and say Marx would be just as well known today as other socialist theorists of his day were it not. No, you can't say that. Marx blows those other guys out of the water as of 1916. And like I've shown you, he had a tripling in his popularity following his death before the Russian Revolution. So it's, you know, again, using the very type of evidence that Phil and Michael use in their paper, I can make a strong case to show Marx was doing just well before the Russian Revolution and had those trends continued, you know, he would have cheated the singularity by 1972. 
All right. Now, let's give you some more evidence. Here is Bumbavark writing in the introduction to Karl Marx and the close of his system. I think this is 1896. Let me double check that. Oh, wait, before I forget, let me mention something. In his AIER piece, well, I should say there's Magnus and McCovey, but I feel like Phil had more to do with this draft, that ran on November 16th, discussing, you know, publicizing their work. They say, Marx's engram patterns are intriguing. Throughout his lifetime, in the next three decades, after his death, they are relatively flat. Late 19th century writers do reference his work as with the aforementioned marginalist critiques, but the rate is relatively low and unchanging, blah, blah, blah. Although we have difficulty measuring the absolute level of Marx's citations, nevertheless, the level of Marx's citation grows at the same relative rate as those of fellow socialists such as Johann Karl Rodbertus and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Okay, I don't know what the heck they're talking about here because from 1873 which is, I picked that as, you know, 10 years before Marx's death. So this one, I didn't cherry pick to catch the maximum upside. I just, I said, okay, they said during his life and, you know, period after his death, Marx was relatively flat, his engrams. So I picked 1873, 10 years before his death to say what's a good starting point. So from 1873 to 1916, Marx's engrams grew 369%. That doesn't sound flat to me. Like if my portfolio manager's, said my stocks were up 369%, I wouldn't fire the guy and say, come on, you're giving me a flat performance. That's not how I would describe that. Proudhon, in that same time frame, his engrams dropped 54%. So not seeing how that's the same rate of growth between the two. And Robertus did grow, but 141%. So when they're saying that, oh yeah, Marx, his popularity, according to engram data, was relatively flat from you know, during his lifetime and the decades following. I mean, no. And by the way, it's not like I'm using some independent, you can just look at Phil's own graph, the one he even posted on Twitter. Just look at it. Look at where Marx's popularity starts and look at where it is a few years before the Russian Revolution. I mean, it bounces around, but it clearly, it looks like it at least triples and arguably quadruples, depending on which endpoint you pick. Just eyeballing. So how that's relatively flat, I have no idea. Now, in more fairness, when he's saying the growth rates of these thinkers are roughly comparable, if you look at the chart of Marx, Robertus, and Proudhon, there is a stretch where they have the same pattern of like ups and downs. But like I said, if you start at 1873, you see Proudhon is on a huge downslide because Proudhon starts out and he's huge and he just loses, he just, you know, bleeds popularity over time. Whereas Marx skyrockets in that interval and Redbertus increases overall, but not nearly as much as Marx does. Okay, so that's what's going on from 1873 to 1916. Okay, so let's return to what I was about to say about Bumbavark. Yeah, it's 1896. Okay, so Bumbavark in 1896 writes this booklet called Karl Marx and the Close of His System. And let me just read you a little bit about this. From the introduction, page three, Bumbavark says, as an author, Karl Marx was enviably fortunate. No one will affirm that his work can be classed among the books which are easy to read or easy to understand. Most other books would have found their way to popularity hopelessly barred if they had labored under an even lighter ballast of hard dialectic and wearisome mathematical deduction. 
Okay, so already you know that Bambavrik is saying Marx's book was popular because he's saying, look at the handicaps it suffered from, and yet it still managed to do this. Now listen, but Marx, in spite of all this, has become the apostle of wide circles of readers, including many who are not as a rule given to the reading of difficult books. Okay, so Bambavrik is explaining why Marx was surprisingly well-read. And then let me, same book, page five now. He's explaining how there was this open-ended problem in the Marxist system. And it's completely independent from the problems of the labor theory of value. Specifically, I'll try to keep this short. Marx thought that the actual value of goods as they, commodities as they traded on the market was due to the amount of congealed labor power in them. And the way that capitalists earned their profit was that they paid the workers just what the workers needed to subsist, but then kept the difference for themselves, the surplus value for themselves, right? So if a worker during a day can produce twice as much stuff as necessary to sustain himself, then the capitalist just pays him, you know, the amount needed to sustain himself, maybe a few crumbs more, but then it goes and sells the product for the full day's worth of labor that's embodied in it. And so that's how the capitalist would earn a 50% rate of return. Or if in general people, you know, they can produce and generate 20% more yield than what they need to sustain themselves as workers, well, then the capitalist could earn a 20% return like that. Okay. So the problem is if that's what, if that's your theory, then you would think in capital intensive industries, the rate of return should be, how's it work? Should be lower than in labor intensive industries. Because in labor-intensive industry, because in other words, they, they, what's going on? When the capitalist buys a machine, he's got to pay the, what the actual labor value embodied in it is. Whereas if he hires the workers, that's where he gets to exploit them and skim off the top. So labor-intensive industries should have a higher degree of exploitation than capital-intensive industries. And so the rate of return should be higher in the labor-intensive ones, but it's not. In practice, we see that the rate of return tends to be equalized, at least adjusted for risk, across industries regardless of capital or labor intensity. So that's the problem that Marx promised to solve in his later work, and then he died without having solved it. And so then his apostles tried to solve it. And even people who weren't Marxists, but just you know thinkers were saying, huh, this is an interesting thing. Let's see if we can grapple with this. So Mbavrik now is talking about this on page five. I consider it one of the most striking tributes which could have been paid to Marx as a thinker that this challenge was taken up by so many persons and in circles so much wider than the one to which it was chiefly directed. Not only followers of Robertus, but men from Marx's own camp and even economists who did not give their adherence to either of these heads of the socialist school, but who would probably have been called by Marx's vulgar economists, vied with each other in the attempt to penetrate into the probable nexus of Marx's lines of da da da. Okay, so Bambavri is saying this guy Marx was such a big deal. All these people, even after his death, were trying to solve this you know, missing link in his theory. And so now in this 1896 response, they came out and said, here's what Marx actually said to solve the problem, posthumously publishing stuff. And then Bambarik, when he's saying the close of his system, he doesn't mean like, haha, I just put the nail in the coffin. He means now we finally have what is purported to be Marx's official resolution of these seeming paradoxes. And Bambarik is, you know, is then going to say, no, he didn't do it. He didn't square the circle. This is still a contradiction. Boom. Okay, so that's what Bambavar thinks. Also relevant, as Phil and Michael concede in a footnote of their paper, Bambavar says, before the Russian Revolution, Marx's theory is the one which has won most general acceptance 
and the one which may to a certain extent be regarded as the official system of the socialism of today. So that seems, you know, interesting that Bumbavik is saying, yeah, Marx is the leader of the socialists, and yet, you know, Phil and Michael are acting like, who can say whether Marx is bigger than these other guys? And the way they handle that is they say, while this speaks to Marx's stature among socialists at the turn of the century, it does not explain his outsized prominence in the social sciences today, which is our primary concern. Okay, so this is kind of like the, what do you call it, Mott and Bailey, bait and switch that's going on here is, look, even after the Russian Revolution, Marx was never big among economists. So yes, economists thought the Marxist system was nutty, but that didn't stop other people from liking it. And it is prima facie good evidence to show Marx was a big deal to say before the revolution, no less a thinker than Mbavrik agreed, Marx is the, you know, his system is the official one of socialism. Incidentally, Mbavrik also, I think, said that Robertus, in his opinion, was superior socialist theorist, second to Marx, or sorry, Marx second to him. All right, so there's that. And then let me now read from another guy, no fan of Marx. This is from Ludwig von Mises. Now, this is after 1917. I forget the exact date this was. I think it was from the 30s. And here's Mises. At no point in history has a doctrine found such immediate and complete acceptance as that contained in these three principles of Marxism. Right, so Mises said earlier, just summarized three central principles of the Marxist system. And he's saying... At no point in history has a doctrine found such immediate and complete acceptance as that contained in these three principles of Marxism. The magnitude and persistence of its success is commonly underestimated. This is due to the habit of applying the term Marxist exclusively to formal members of one or other of the self-styled Marxist parties who are pledged to uphold word for word the doctrines of Marx and Engels as interpreted by their respective sects and to regard such doctrines as the unshakable foundation and ultimate source of all that is known about society and is constituting the highest standard in political dealings. But if we include under the term Marxist all who have accepted the basic Marxian principles, that class conditions, that socialism is inevitable, and that research into the being and working of the socialist community is unscientific, we shall find very few non-Marxists in Europe east of the Rhine, and even in Western Europe and the United States, many more supporters than opponents of Marxism. Okay, so again... He's writing this after the takeover, but it's clear when he says at no point in history has a doctrine found such immediate and complete acceptance and the magnitude and persistence of its success is commonly underestimated. To me, it's Mises doesn't say anything about the war. He's talking about the nature of what they believe and why that spread like wildfire. Because for example, Marxism gave an out, like here's how you could escape from the critiques of the economists because you have the Marxist doctrine of polylogism. All right, so again, this idea that Marx was relatively unknown as of 1916 and had no influence outside of just certain activist camps. It, no, Bumbavrik and Mises don't agree with that. The Engram data doesn't agree with that or don't agree with that because data is plural. Uh, let's see. Let me now move on to getting more into the Twitter debates now. So this guy, John Gantz, wrote a scathing critique when the paper first dropped. And he says... That, for example, Thorsten Beblin, a major figure in the social sciences, lectured on Marx at Harvard in 1906, saying, The system as a whole has an air of originality and an initiative such as is rarely met with among the sciences that deal with any phase of human culture. All right. And then he quotes Max Weber. Do you say it, Max Weber? I'm going to say it like that because I feel like I'm Dracula. I come from Transylvania and I read Protestant ethic. Okay, 
So Max Weber says, and he said this near the end of his life. So this was after 1917, full disclosure, but this is what he says. The honesty of a scholar of our time and even more of a philosopher of our time can be judged on how he described his own relationship to Nietzsche and Marx. He then who denies that he would have been capable of achieving the most important parts of his own work without heirs belies himself just as much as others. The world in which we live as intellectuals bears largely the imprint of Marx and Nietzsche. Okay, so again, you know, you could say, oh, well, this is because of the Russian Revolution, but we have evidence here. We're, we're trying to document this is serious thinkers thought the Marxist system was a big deal. And here, you know, Weber isn't saying scholars need to admit that, oh, because the Bolsheviks promoted this guy, that's why their own theories benefited from it. You know, he's saying that, you know, the Marxist system infiltrated scholarship and that most scholars need to recognize the debt that their own work pays or owes to Marx and Nietzsche. Okay. Now on this point, this is something that, uh, played a major part in the Twitter debates. And so Gans says right here, I need to insert an unfortunate sidebar here. Magnus is falsely claiming on Twitter that I said these comments appear in Weber's The Protestant Ethic. Magnus is either lying or hopelessly befuddled. I never said these comments were in that book because I know they're not. He said Weber made only a few passing mentions of Marx. I wrote that the mere frequency of mention was an absurd criterion because someone could make reference without naming someone directly and or even those few references could be quite strong. And here's what I actually wrote. And so he's got a screenshot of what happened on Twitter. And so Phil is saying, except Weber only made a few passing mentions of Marx. He was much more heavily engaged with Sambert and similar contemporaries. And John says in response to him, this is why the whole method is absurd. Even when people's work doesn't mention Marx, it can be clear it's responding to him. One of Weber's, quote, few passing mentions was to the effect of, this is one of the most important thinkers of our time, right? So John is saying that, yeah, if we're going to use... Max Weber is an authority on Marx. Yeah, he didn't talk about Marx a lot in terms of frequency of his mentions. But when he did mention him, he said he's one of the most important thinkers of our time. So Phil seized on that and said, oh, you think that Weber said that about Marx in the Protestant ethic? No, he didn't. He didn't even mention him. You can go to the index of that book and see that Karl Marx isn't even in it. So you're a liar or an idiot or both. And then John came back and said, what are you talking about, Phil? I didn't say it was from the Protestant ethic. I just said Weber said that. And so when I saw that exchange, I scrolled back to see, and yes, John Gans is entirely correct. He never said that Weber said it in that particular book. He just said Weber said it. Phil made up the fact, and Phil is claiming, well, no, but I was talking about Weber and the Protestant ethic. And so since you were answering me, that means you must have meant that too, which no, it doesn't. You know, if someone's talking about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount and they say, you know, they take some controversial interpretation and then I say, yes, but Jesus also said, and I say something else from the Gospels, the person couldn't say, oh, no, Jesus never said that in the Sermon on the Mount, idiot, stop lying. Like, and I said, I didn't say he said on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm just saying this is also what Jesus said, you know, if it contradicted what that guy said, the Sermon on the Mount meant, All right? So that's what's happening here. So a normal human being when confronted with that situation where he had been talking about Weber in Protestant ethic, talking about, hey, he barely mentioned Marx. And then John Gans comes along and says, okay, but in general, this idea that we're just going to count up how many times someone mentions something is silly. After all, what if one of the few times they mention the person, they say what a giant he was. For example, one of Weber's few passing mentions, like you talk about Phil, was the effect that he was one of the most important things of our time. And then Phil comes back and says, oh, no, he didn't say that in the press and ethic. And John says, right, I know. I didn't say he did. I'm saying he said it, though. 
At that point, a normal human being would say, oh, okay, sorry, I thought you, since I was talking about the process, that's what I thought you meant, but you just meant in general. Okay, and you would have moved on. But Phil is no ordinary man. He continued to say, no, no, you meant it was in the Protestant ethic and you're wrong. And here's why I ever look, it's not even the index. And then later when Phil wrote this up on his own blog, he highlighted that particular element of the dispute as if it was like, you know, some smoking gun to show what a liar and moron John Gantz was, even going so far as to post a graphic of the index. Like, hey, in case you think I'm pulling a fast one here and really Marx is in the index of the Protestant ethic, like John Gantz claimed. No, it's not. Look it for yourself. Which is kind of like a, you know, like a magician's misdirection, like to make you think the action's over here when really the trick was already pulled. So the trick is to say Gantz was saying this was from the Protestant ethic when no, it wasn't. Gans never said that. He repeatedly told Phil, I never said that. And Phil just kept saying, no, yes, you did. You meant it, you idiot. It wasn't in there. And then for his readers, instead of just informing us that, hey, it's not in the index, he has to show us the index. Like in case you think I'm just missing it, like maybe my eyes got tired by the time I got to M. Nope, it's not in there, see? So John Gans is clear. All right. Now you might say, but Bob, this doesn't really have anything to do with, right, it doesn't. That's why I'm saying it's so crazy to see Phil argue with these people where he dies on a hill that doesn't even matter. He's lying about stuff. And I'm going to say lying because I don't know what else to say. The guy continually said, Phil, I never said that. Oh, by the way, I double checked. I asked Phil because like I said, I scrolled back through their Twitter exchange to see, did John Gans say it came from the Protestant ethic as Phil's claiming? And no, he didn't. And so I asked Phil, Phil, where did he say that it came from the Protestant ethic? And Phil gave me a link to the guy's tweet. And in that tweet, the guy did not say anything about the Protestant ethic. He just said, Weber said this. So that's why I'm certain that this guy, John Gantz, is correct when he's saying, Phil, I never said it came from that book. You're just making that up. And so I don't know what else to call it when Phil has the guy tell him, no, that's not what I said. And other people are kind of pointing out to him, Phil, and I think I explicitly said it. Maybe I didn't. That Phil, he didn't say that. Pretty sure I did. And yet Phil decides to make that one of the chief points in his rebuttal to the guy. So anyway, my point is, you don't want to call it lying, call it being very slippery and weird and not cool academically. Okay, fine. But there's no point to it. That's what's crazy. It's not like, did you order the code red? And, you know, Jack Nicholson's character has every reason to not answer that truthfully. This thing doesn't matter one way or the other, whether it came from that book or not. And yet Phil just continues to say falsely that this guy said it came from that book. Like for, it doesn't even serve any purpose. <laughs> so you can see, I hope, why the leftists who are like thinking John Gantz is dunking on Phil, seeing Phil act like this and then doubling down and just continuing to repeat something that has clearly been demonstrated. They're just like, who is this guy? What the heck? Okay. Let me just wrap this up. How does this affect me? Okay. So like, here's an example of how Phil dealt with some of my points. So Phil quoted John Maynard Keynes on Marx saying, how can I accept a doctrine which sets up as his Bible above and beyond criticism and obsolete economic textbook, which I now know or which I know to be not only scientifically erroneous, but without interest or application for the modern world. And so I said, well, Phil, I just looked it up and said, this is from 1926, right? And so since Phil was saying no one is allowed to show a pro-Marx quote after 1917, because after all, that could just, you know, be because of the Russian Revolution, I was arguing, well, strictly speaking, to really make your case, you want to show that before 1917, people were dismissing Marx as nothing, right? To like, that's going to help show that the 1917 event was decisive, whereas you showing someone even after the Russian Revolution didn't think Marx was a big deal and an economist, that doesn't really explain, well, then why were his views adopted? Because as I said, 
it's not that all of a sudden economists changed their tune. It's not that after 1917, all of a sudden the economists said, you know what, actually labor theory really makes sense. That's not what happened. Both before and after the 1917 revolution, economists thought Marx was goofy and just, you know, had a crazy system that didn't make any sense. So to explain why did other disciplines nonetheless adopt him, it doesn't really work to give a quote from after 1917 saying an economist doesn't think the Marxist system works. So I said, this quote is from 1926, right? Well, 1926 is bigger than 1917. So this actually bears very little on the way you're defending your thesis. And to that, Phil said, this is a very strange way of expressing, quote, I'm mad at you because you found Hoppe quotes showing he's a racial segregationist, Bob. That was Phil's response. Let me talk about another one. Alex Tabarak on Twitter said, many people are misinterpreting the Magnus Mike Windale, that's Michael McCovey's paper on Marx. Key claim is not that Marx was relatively obscure before 1917. The key claim is were it not for the Russian Revolution, Marx would be relatively obscure today. For that, synthetic control method is critical. Okay, actually, no, Alex, the synthetic control cannot possibly tell us what the counterfactual synthetic Marx would have looked like, what, uh, 1960, 70 years later. That's not what it's for. That's why in their paper, I think they only went up to 1932. Now you have a certain training period and then you can extrapolate a little bit after the treatment, but you can't go decades into the future. That's, you know, ask Kevin. You can't do that. So if that's what you're saying they're supposed to be doing, Alec, well, then we all have to admit, no, that the technique can't do that. What the technique can show us is as of like 1932, how much of real Karl Marx's popularity can be attributed to the Russian Revolution. It can tell us that. It can't really tell us as of 2020 how much of Marx's popularity can be attributed to the 1917 revolution. All right. So again, all these people changing what the thesis is, ignoring the title of the paper, ignoring what they said on page two was their thesis, and then offering up something in some cases that still, okay, yep, even with that substitution, that's not what the paper could show. But anyway, I said in response, Alex, I relied on Phil's announcement of the paper to tell me what the key claims were. His first sentence surprised and intrigued me. That was the one that said Karl Marx was infrequently cited and largely unknown outside of radical labor activism prior to 1917. That was what interested me. His critics aren't misunderstanding. They are reading what Phil literally said in announcing it, right? That's what I said. And I put a screenshot showing it. So, okay, take that for what it's worth. And well, unfortunately, I'm having trouble finding it right now. But in response to that, to my statements, I think it was on this thread. It could be somewhere else. Phil came back and told me, it's too bad, Bob, you misunderstood our paper and descended to an internet troll, hoppiness must be a hell of a drug, said something like that. I think I have a screenshot of it somewhere. By the way, for all this stuff, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 254. I'll link to a blog post where I'll put up these receipts. I'll, you know, I grabbed a bunch of screenshots. I'll put some of this up just so you can see with your own eyes that I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. This is how Phil was rolling. The last thing I will mention is this guy, Jeremy Newfeld. He was the one who started using the Ngram data to show that, hey, he was showing that Marx was bigger than Alfred Marshall and Carl Menger and Leon Ross and other, you know, big economics names as of 1916. And Jeremy said something like, if Marx was relatively minor as of 1916, then, you know, who was a big deal or something like that. And so Phil and his defenders all rushed in and kept accusing Jeremy of not understanding how synthetic controls work. And, you know, just talking down to him like he's an idiot. And like, sorry, you can't read the paper. Or like, you know, doing emojis of showing, you know, someone holding their head in their hands. Because, oh my gosh, this guy. And, you know, as I pointed out, I said, Phil, 
Suppose right now we wanted to ask, is Jeremy Newfeld a relatively minor figure among economists? We wouldn't need to create a synthetic Newfeld. We would just look and see in the literature right now, how many sites does Jeremy have relative to other people? That's what it would mean to see, is he a minor figure right now? Okay, and so likewise, to determine before the Russian Revolution, was Marx a big deal or not? Was he unknown or was he known? You look at his engram data. You don't need to look at synthetic Karl Marx, okay? But yet Phil kept saying, oh, this guy, he's just cherry picking the data. You know, he's just picking authors or whatever. He doesn't even understand. No, you let the computer pick the weights on the donor pool. You know, that's for the how you do synthetic controls. Man, this guy's stupid. Just completely missing the point of what Jeremy Newfeld was showing. And I felt bad for the guy. He's like, I think he's a grad student at GMU, actually. He kept like a periodically in response to Phil and other people explaining, well, no, the synthetic control would show me like the effect of the Russian revolution. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in establishing the base. And I want to see how big was Marx before. And for that, I don't need it. And everyone's just like, oh, you, you, you. and one guy was like, yeah, sure that some guy on Twitter is better than, you know, the JPE editorial process. Okay. You know, that the fact that JPE published this means you're not allowed to criticize it on Twitter. So anyway, I'll stop there. But that was the sordid affair. At the very least, I hope those of you who were surprised by my reaction on this can see it's not merely that Phil hurt my feelings when he tweeted about Hans Hoppe a month ago and I jumped in to point out areas where I thought he was mischaracterizing what Hoppe's actual position was, that no, it seemed like there were some serious issues with this and Phil just dismissed calling him. Another example, so the Jeet here guy said, these critics are uh, crazy. Look at these goofballs. Among other things, James Joyce in one of his novels has students in the early 1900s excitedly discussing Marxism and one of them is a Marxist. And so then Phil tweeted there, quote tweeted it, and then said, me, colon, Marx's citations exploded after 1917. Them. Hey, look, I found one book citing Marx before 1917, therefore wrong. And then Phil said, see, I'm definitely dealing with morons. And so I pointed out, and I said, no, Phil, you changed what your statement was. You didn't merely say Marx's citations exploded after 1917. You changed what he said. He didn't merely say one book cited Marx. He said that students were excitedly discussing him on a college campus and that one of them was a Marxist. And I said, so when you combine, and I, and I put Phil's original tweet announcement where he said Marx was unknown prior to 1917. And I said, so when you see what you actually said, and then when you consider what Jeet hears, James Joyce anecdote or factoid is, then all of a sudden it's not so moronic. And I think it was maybe in response to that one where he said it was a hell of a drive. I don't know, but okay. No, that one, I think he told me to look up the word relatively because I don't know how dictionaries work. Okay. I think we'll stop there. Oh, one postscript here. Something I should have mentioned because even though it's a minor issue, I don't want to give Phil an out. I don't want to give him something to say. See, we mentioned this in the paper and my repeated public proclamations about it. And Bob obviously doesn't know the first thing. And the issue is that they say often we can't look at levels for reasons discussed in the paper, you know, using the engram data. And so that's why they don't do things like, say, as of 1916, Karl Marx, you know, was such and such vis-a-vis Rutbertus and Proudhon and blah, blah, blah. So they might try to throw out a big chunk of what I did in this episode by saying, Murphy, you moron, if you knew the first thing, if you had read the paper, did you even do that, you lazy critic? Then you would have known that you can't use the engram data to look at levels. And so you sitting there trying to tell me that Karl Marx was bigger than David Ricardo and Alfred Marshall and David Hume 
William Stanley Jevons as of 1916. Well, you, you don't know that because you can't use the level. My understanding from reading their paper is the issue is that there are certain authors that have different first names or sometimes they're often conflated with like with their kin that, you know, has the same last name. And so like what they ended up doing, for example, was looking at Karl Marx, but not looking at Proudhon's full name, but just at Proudhon. And so the thinking is, yes, by just saying Proudhon, we're going to capture other people named Proudhon, but that's not so important. We just want to look at the trends over time. So like, you know, that the fact that the Proudhon is bigger than just the one guy is fine because you wouldn't expect that to systematically matter. Now, having said that, you could, if there's something that affects socialists, then, you know, that could affect one person versus another differently. Okay. But in general, that's the idea that they're going for there. So I want to say, okay, fine. But if anything, that hurts Marx because they use his full name because there are lots of people named Marx. So they didn't just search for Marx. They looked for Karl Marx. But then for some of the other authors, they just use their last name. So like I'm saying, if anything, in any given year, if I'm looking at Karl Marx versus the other guy and I include just the guy's last name, that stacks the deck against Karl Marx because it's harder for him to beat out the other guy if the other guy, it's including anybody with that last name. So again, maybe there's some other element too that I didn't see them discuss in the paper, but that when they say we can't look at levels for reasons discussed in the paper, I believe that's what they're referring to. And if so, that has no bearing on me in 1916 looking at Karl Marx versus Alfred Marshall. I didn't just say versus Marshall. And if I did, that would be stacking the deck against Karl. I looked at it against David Ricardo. I looked at him against David Hume. So I'm using first last names and there's no issue. It's not like sometimes people call David Hume Chuck or something or Davy, hey Davy, there you go with your price species flow mechanism, you dog. No. So that's the issue of, you know, different variants and spelling and whatever. And I was doing it in English. That's not an issue. Okay. Um, one other thing I forgot to mention that I wanted in terms of how Phil's rhetorical strategy, he often says on Twitter in regard to his critics saying, Yep, my critics say that we claim Marx had zero citations before 1917, and then they just document one person who cited him as if that ends the situation. <laughs> okay, everyone just stop and take a deep breath. Do you really think that the fans of Marx or just, you know, leftists who may not like Marx but care about the record, when they were responding to Phil, do you really think that they thought the Journal of Political Economy published a paper which claimed that Karl Marx, in the decades following his death up through 1916, had zero citations to his name, that no printed book contained the phrase Karl Marx, period, in 30 years before the Russian Revolution. Do people really think that's what John Gantz and the other critics were accusing Phil of believing, and that the JPE published that, and that the way to refute it was therefore to show one book somewhere cited Karl Marx in that 30-year stretch? Of course, that's not what happened. So clearly, Phil is exaggerating for rhetorical effect when he says, that's what my critics think we're saying. No, what the critics think you're saying, Phil, is Marx was a minor figure before 1917. And the reason they think you're saying that is because you said that, all right? And it's ironic that Phil even said in one of them, and I think I will have this if you go to bobmurphyshow.com 254, you'll see the link where I give the screenshots of this stuff. I believe I grabbed one where in the same tweet, Phil is complaining about his opponents saying, they're just making up stuff that I never said. 
when they say that I claim Marx had zero citations. So that's ironic because he is making up something his critics never said by him saying that because nobody ever said that, Phil. And I even followed up that tweet and said to him, Phil, where did someone claim that you said Marx had zero tweet or zero citation? He did have zero tweets, by the way, before 1917. And Phil didn't answer that. Okay, now I'm done. Again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 254 if you want to see the receipts. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. Bob Murphy Show.